0: Namo Tassa bakawato arahato samma samputasa Namo tasa bakawato arahato samma samputasa Namo tasa bakawato arahato samma samputasa Uttang dhammang sankang namasami Beta, the sound is still okay? Okay, we keep trying. <clears throat> so, good evening and good morning to everyone, or good afternoon. Uh, we just started the range retreat the other day, two days ago, I guess. Yeah, like one loses track. And so we are now seven bhikkhus, one samanera, one anagaraka, and two lay stewards with us. And we've started our... Um, Vinaya studies during the during the vassa, um, we review the rules that the bhikkhus live by, the Patimokkha rules and, and the other protocols that we use. And Venerable Amarsiri is presenting it uh, this year. We had a very interesting session the other day. Um, and when you when you consider the Buddhist teachings, I think most monks will always emphasize that there are there are two aspects to the teaching. And that is reflected in the way, uh, when the Buddha was asked what, who, who is the teacher that he leaves behind, who, who is the successor, he said, I'm not, I'm not appointing a particular person, but I leave you the Dhamma and the Vinaya. And lay people don't have um, that much information about the Vinaya, although it's not esoteric, you can certainly study it, but it doesn't seem very relevant to lay life. But the relevance in it is, uh, for lay people, is that there is a conventional truth and conventional um, agreements that societies make. And the Sangha is a conventional society which lives uh, according to the principles of the Vinaya, the rules, the protocols, the etiquettes, and so on. And and, and that, that defines how a bhikkhu is socially, how he interacts with others, and how he practices restraint. Uh, so it's more than just morality. Vinaya is not not just morality. Obviously, the the major rules are are uh, concern issues of morality, but it's it's about the mundane things, about uh, hierarchy, about sharing work, about sharing resources, um, about certain etiquettes, about the way we might. Um, wash our bowls, or take care of our robes, and then we have the etiquettes around a particular monastic style, so we call that in Thai Kawat, or the rules of the monastery, and those we take from uh, from Thailand, from Wat Bapong, but also the way we've developed monasteries uh, outside of Thailand. All of that makes up our rule, our monastic rule. Um, and, and lay people don't have that particular format. You have the five precepts, the eight precepts, and then you have the own perhaps unwritten rules in the family, uh, and then you have the rules of your workplace, and then you have the rules of larger society. Um, so that's, to some extent, we have, the, obviously we have the rules of the larger society, but we have a very well-defined lifestyle, which is terribly helpful because... Um, that because the lifestyle is defined in that way, we don't have to think a lot about, say, who is senior or who is junior, or uh, who's taking care of the stores, or or what are we going to do today? Or um, we do what we do. We we have pujas. We eat at a certain time. So it really simplifies life, as well as creating a sense of communal harmony. We've agreed to live this way, and we. We give up to that rule, we give up to that agreement, uh, we give up selfishness and so on to that agreement so that we can live and and practice in this particular way. But that doesn't mean that we don't feel selfish or irritated or annoyed or frightened or inspired or depressed, we have all those human emotions running through us. but what we're, we, we, by giving up to this rule, to this way of life, what we're doing is we're not trying to rearrange the lifestyle to make ourselves happy, because it's good enough, it's very good in fact. We're comfortable, we have food, we have shelter, we have good friendships, we have teaching. So our, our raison d'etre is not to, to get some kind of monastic experience by changing things around, but rather it's to use the monastic form to observe stream of consciousness, to observe how consciousness works, to learn about consciousness, about sense experience, and to find why we suffer within that. So the the two ways of looking at the teaching is one is conventional truth, and then the other is the truth that liberates you from suffering, liberating truth. So the first is the conventions of, of responsibility, so if you're a mom, or you're a dad or you're a student or you are an employee or you're an employer or whatever it might be you have certain conventions you live within but then that won't really liberate you you can try it's all you want to create a perfect monastery or a perfect family or a perfect society that won't really liberate you it would help definitely it'll help but not to dismiss good societies or good monasteries those are very very helpful foundations for uh, reflection, But there has to be inner work too. There has to be some inner work where you're observing your inner world and seeing, well, why am I making a problem out of this? Or why is there suffering? Or why do, how do I deal with whatever I have to deal with? And so the way I like to think about that is the, the awareness of stream of consciousness. So we can look at life as a social uh, experience. I am, I am Viradhammo and I'm the senior monk here and I have my fellow companions in the Holy Life with me, and I live in Canada, and I live in, uh, near the town of Perth, and I'm 73 years old and all of that. That makes me, that's the kind of personal narrative and story that I live in. But, but the way I experience life uh, as, a, uh, as a human being is uh, a, 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 a set of perceptions and feelings and memories and tastes and sounds and pains and pleasure the come and go, the come and go, the come and go. So I like to call that stream of consciousness. So I can look at my life both as a social being. Uh, what are my duties today, and then also as uh, awareness of stream of consciousness. And when we look at awareness of stream of consciousness, that's when we do not use the sense of I. We use the five khandas. When we look at uh, my my position as a social being, then we use the sense of I. So. As a, as a bhikkhu, I am Viradhamma. But in stream of consciousness, there is feeling, there is perception, there is smell, there is taste, there's this whole range of things. So when you, when you just dismiss the sense of I, where there's no Viradhamma, that's silly, there is a Viradhamma functioning. And so that's defined by my responsibilities and rules. Now when you, when you start to observe stream of consciousness, then you're, you're, you're observing Dharma in a way which liberates you from ego, which liberates you from the sense of self. Um, so let's say if, I, um, if my duty is to come to the morning meditation at five o'clock and uh, I, I wake up at four or whatever and I think, oh, I don't really want to go, uh, I go but then I can watch not wanting to go as an object in stream of consciousness. So there's the duty which elevates me above whatever I want or don't want, and then there's the wanting and not wanting. So I can see, I want to to go to the morning meeting, I don't want to go to the morning meeting as a movement in consciousness. And if I'm aware of that movement and don't just constantly react through desire to it, I can begin to find peace in awareness, awareness of change. If I'm always reacting to the stream of consciousness with my desires and my preferences and my judgments and all the rest of it, then my attention is constantly preoccupied with trying to get stream of consciousness right, and I'll never get it right. It'll always be pleasant and unpleasant, it'll be inspiring or boring, I'll feel uh, motivated to do something or not motivated, because that's the way of stream of consciousness. It's not constant and it's not reliable, it's up and down, it's hot and cold so the the, the the peace of the mind and I was last week I was talking about equanimity equanimity doesn't come in just rearranging stream of consciousness it comes in witnessing stream of consciousness what what helps in the rearrangement of life is a good lifestyle so having good good companions kalyanamitta, or having a safe environment or being free from viruses and things like that that's where we can try to change things to the best of our ability, but we also have to do this inner work. So when we, when we look at stream of consciousness, we have this word Sankara, which you see, um, and Sankara is simply a compounded uh, part of the stream of consciousness, which depends on something, and in turn, it, uh, other things are dependent on it. So when I see a bird, you see a robin outside, that's a Sankara. It's a it's an image I see. So, but the sankara then creates a perception in my mind of a robin, and then that creates a memory and a thought. So these sankaras are just the, the 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 kind of process that we live in. We live in a in a process kind of world of experience, and our 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 challenge is to not get so preoccupied with this process that we miss the fact that behind the process, there's a lot of peace. There's a lot of silence, there's a lot of stillness. So, as I just indicate, in this, the way I I like to just introduce a a meditation, I say, listen to sound, and then the sound is the process, right? You're hearing hearing a car, or you're hearing a bird, or you're hearing your own stomach rumble, or whatever is, it doesn't matter. And then you notice, oh yeah, there is the movement, but there is the silence behind the movement. So then the question is, how can I be available to that silence rather than think that silence is some kind of external experience. No, it's an internal experience. Certainly I have the the experiences of like, I'm at a silent retreat, the environment might be very, very silent, but I might be very noisy inside, worrying or or whatever it is. So the silence that we talk about in equanimity or peacefulness or non- or non-attachment is the silence of awareness. And that is not noticed if I'm always just preoccupied with changing stream of consciousness, okay? So then, a a personal question arises for all of us, where in the stream of conscious events does my attention get preoccupied? In worry, in fear, in resentment? And, And those are the areas where attachment is strong, where the sense of self is strong, and those are the areas that need to be more aware and awake, and not get caught up with it. Right. So we're all doing that kind of work. So I, one of the things I was is thinking about is the sankara of disagreement. Now disagreement is a sankara, isn't it? It's. But you say you you have the word disagreement. Well, that sounds like a fixed lump, you know, like a mango or something like that. But disagreement is a process. Uh, it's, it, it arises, conflict arises from causes and conditions, then there's a reaction to it, and then there's a, a counter-reaction to something else and so on and so forth. So you could make a, a part of like your meditation, why don't you observe disagreement in your life? Now you do that, when you make intentions like that, I'm going to observe how disagreement operates in stream of consciousness you, you create already a distance, a distancing from the experience of disagreement. When you don't create that distance, you can get caught up in disagreement and argue or feel put upon or whatever it is. And then you you have the echo of that. But if you make it like an experiment, okay, this week, I'm just going to observe what happens uh, when disagreement comes up. Now, it might be someone disagrees with you. It might be someone you disagree with. It might be someone criticizes you, uh, but it's a very strong human um, social situation. Disagreements happening all the time. Question is the attachment, right? To think that you're not going to have disagreements would be stupid. It's just life. Um, and to think that people won't disagree with you would be false, right? So it's, it's a normal thing to experience. So there's nothing wrong with disagreement. What happens when there is disagreement? How do you respond? How do you react? How do you operate? So some, and some part of us sometimes when there's a disagreement, we get angry. You know, like if there's some, maybe some social injustice or whatever. So maybe you're you're observing the nature of disagreement in your own conscious, and then see that every time there's a disagreement, I tend to get hot headed. I tend to react with anger. Oh, that's a good insight isn't it so it's not now just disagreement and me getting angry in a disagreement i now have awareness on a pattern that takes place in my mind when disagreement arises and that's very useful because now you can see well i don't have to be a victim to that pattern that pattern's there sure uh, i have to bear with it because it's 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 been conditioned into my mind but maybe i can just witness the anger reaction the disagreement and not go there, and not go there. I can still disagree, but I don't have to do the anger bit, or maybe I do, or maybe I don't, but I can at least learn about it. And so I I begin to see with disagreement as condition, there is aversion or annoyance or anger. And that's dependent origination. That's a dependent origination, that the anger depends on a previous condition. So Sankara's condition, Sankara's condition, Sankara's. Now, because I'm interested in peace, I'm interested in, in non-grasping, I'm interested in, in equanimity, I see that with disagreement as condition, there is the uh, non-upeka or the lack of equanimity called anger or aversion. So That's one way. And if, I'm, if I see that that, you know, each of us will have different patterns and we'll have many, many patterns around this, but you can see the principle of self-reflection is to notice the stream of consciousness and see where I get caught. So some people, will then, uh, some people will use disagreement in a way to overpower others. So you see that sometimes in couples. One couple is dominant over the other couple. So one, cu- one, one person in the couple says it's five o'clock, and the other person says, no, it's ten past five. Uh, one person in the couple says it was, it, was, uh, it was last February. They say, no, it was last March. And they just dominate. They disagree, but the disagreement is coming from dominance, Right? They have power over you. Now, if you're the the if you're on the bottom side of that dominance, right? What happens? You take it, right? Maybe it's your boss and you have to take it, but then you have the reaction of, I hate this, and you walk home and you have home, and then you have the sankara of the reaction, resentment. So, with disagreement as condition, there comes dominance on you, right? And then, with dominance as condition, you have resentment at home on your meditation cushion. Now, if you if you notice that, maybe like you have a boss who is very kind of domineering and opinionated, and bosses sometimes they don't have views and opinions; they're only right, <laughs> right? And then you want to you know you get out of my life, will you? But you can't. You can't do that. You're not the boss. He's the boss. She's the boss. All right. So you're in that situation. What can you do? Quit? Okay. Come to the monastery. Yeah, but you don't. You have to work and you have this boss. So you say, oh, with, with disagreement as condition, there is this domineering energy that comes at you. Now, if you can be aware right there of the bodily reaction, but it's hard because you're being, you're being crushed by this domineering uh, personality, you, and you just feel it more, you feel it more, and you still have to be polite, otherwise you get fired, <laughs> this, this is life. Uh, and you feel it, and you feel it, and you feel it, and you don't run to the thinking. You don't run to the resentment. You feel it in the body. Then you tend to process it much more quickly. So you go home and you sit with it. You have to do that because it has a re- result in your heart. But now you sit with it and you know it. Oh, with this social situation as condition, I get this kind of resentment afterwards. So now you're working towards upeka. You're working towards equanimity, not by just having a... a, a um, a nice ideal about upeka, you're actually looking at your heart and why there is not upeka. You're looking at non-upeka. Right? So then then maybe you are the domineering person sometimes. We you know we have these patterns. And you notice that when someone is uh, inferior in status or or younger or whatever, you do that. You say you don't own anything, you're only 32 and I'm 62 you twit <laughs> or whatever it is. And, and you notice, oh yeah, with disagreement as condition, there is this kind of tyrant in me, this fascist comes out or something like that. They say, ah, now that's suffering, that's not upeka. Huh? And you see, oh, okay, I have to watch that. I want to watch that. So, so someone comes at you younger and they, and, or whatever, whatever in, in the hierarchy that you live, comes and says, you know, you were wrong and you feel defensive. Or, what? Oh, defensiveness. Oh, with criticism as condition, there is defensiveness. Oh, yeah, I see. And defensiveness is not upeka. It's not the same as, oh, okay, that's your opinion. Okay, thank you. Oh, okay, I disagree with you. But you're not getting upset. You can just disagree. So you can disagree from clarity, from upeka, or you could disagree from uh, defensiveness or from aversion, or you can disagree by. Dominating the other person, just giving them, so some people will, you know, you'll you'll say something, they want to dominate you, they'll give you a fact, and you're not sure if that fact is true, and you think, well, this guy's playing a fast one on me, but, okay, you have to back off, and you go to the internet, and you say, that was bullshit, that wasn't true, <laughs> sorry about my French, <laughs> And, and you realize you've just been dominated by someone, right? And life is that way. And especially around disagreements and power structures and all that, that's going on all the time. So if you're coming home and you're feeling like resentful about the days work, okay, you've got to be back, you know, you have to get your background awareness of stream of consciousness stronger. And this is where meditation helps. So that when you go back into the, into the workplace or into the hitty, you know, someone is domineering, uh, or someone, uh, or, or or the other, you're domineering and they're very obsequious. Oh yes, 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 yes. And well, that's not good either. That's not a relationship. Yeah, that's not life. That's not love. And 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 so you begin to understand how the sankara of disagreement is very, very powerful, and you begin to say, well, I'm going to just observe. What happens to me when I'm criticized? What does that feel like? What happens to me when I'm praised? What happens, uh, why do I all, like like some people, um, like, it, like I say, some people don't have opinions, they only have the truth, and they give you lectures. <laughs> you, know, you know anyone like that? <laughs> and then sometimes you do that too. And then you feel the lecture coming, and I say, oh, here we go, right? And then you feel aversion, you feel aversion to the lecture. So with disagreement as condition, there's lecture, with lectures, there's conditioned as aversion. With aversion is conditioned, you go home and you feel resentment, right? But now you're trying to see all the, the dynamic going on and try to practice upeka. And, and, and what is upeka? Well, as I said last week, upeka is in the context of the four Brahmaviharas: the Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. So it is about love. You know, it is some kind of open-heartedness. It's not a, a cold. Indifference or I don't care for anyone. I do care. I do really, really care. And and, and so the the component of, of upeka is is cultivated through the the observance of, of the causal conditions which create non-upeka. So you need to be aware of stream of consciousness. And you can see how very important that is and how difficult that is. It's very, very difficult to do that. Uh, is sometimes, like the disagreement, will be in, within your own mind. I shouldn't have done that. Well, I I should have done that. I shouldn't have done that, and, and it'll be a kind of inner disagreement and inner argument. and And the whole the nub of the teaching is around thought and the attachment of the sense of self. That's that's really where 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 we get lost. Because if you have strong body awareness. Even, even if you have a very dominant, you know, a position, a, a situation, someone's always right, and they're always opinionated, and they're always dumping on you. And if you socially can't challenge them, at least if you have body awareness, and you're not just reacting through that body awareness, you're practicing upeka. And if you get good at it, more and more it goes in one ear and out the other. I had this, I had one example of this in, in Oxford, in Oweba in '70, I think 1978, we we were allowed a um, a, a, retreat, a to use a retreat center near Oxford, and there was a person there who was quite powerful and quite influential in the retreat center, and um, I was I was just a junior monk and I was a guest there, and this person had a very was was uh, was from Asia and and really hated white people, and and. Um, was always going on about the, the sloppy white people who were on this retreat. and he was very obnoxious, very racist kind of guy. And he would come at me with his kind of domineering opinion, right? And then I would then I would ar- try to argue with him and then I walked away from that feeling terrible. you know I'm not supposed to argue with this man. I'm supposed to show him the way. So I'd feel terrible about that. Then I'd say, okay, I'm not going to argue. Then he'd come at me with this kind of racist stuff, and I just would just grit my teeth. Just don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. But then I went away and felt rotten too, because then I had all the resentment and the, the kind of dumping load he had put on me, because I, I disagreed with him strongly. And then one day uh, he came at me, and then I thought, I've got to have some kind of a mantra to give me some kind of a protection from this creepy guy. And what I did, I started to just do, may you be well, may you be well, may you be well, not not in full voice, uh, to myself, as he was coming at me with his diatribe. May you be well, 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 may you be well. So I was kind of creating a boundary of the heart and with my own language. So I wasn't absorbing all this rubbish and garbage in my mind. And he saw that I wasn't reacting. He saw, he knew that I knew, that kind of feeling. And then he stopped. And then I gave him a really good Dhamma talk. And he never did that to me again. And I thought, I did it. <laughs> now that took me about four months to figure that one out. I'm not very quick. Uh, and, but I just went back to the drawing board. I went back to my own, my own um, inability to be present, because it was about aversion. I didn't like the man at all. And yet he had power in, in a situation where I had less power. And it was a very good lesson in, in that kind of dynamic. And I could see that Metta Bhavana is a kind of sense of acceptance of life as it is. And you can see that it is conjoined with upeka. You know, they're not they're not they're not, they're not separate locations in consciousness. You can see how they, they work together. So in, in the development of of, of upekā, I think what you, you, you want to do is to really review in your own consciousness what is non-upekā, right? And this area of, of, of disagreement and dominance and views and opinions, it's very, very polarizing, isn't it? Um, as we see around the virus, or, or, or politics, and all that, and, and there's absolutely no compromise, there's no forgiveness, there's no metta, and there's no upeka, there's this kind of blaming all the time. So, so this is what I do, if I, if I see in my own, in my own practice, there's some area, um, that I, I, a, a strong sense of self is being created, um, then I try to, I try to go back and say, well, what's the basic emotional, uh, quality there. What, what would you call that? So it's not just about a, a person or a situation or, or whatever. What Would what, what I call that fear? would I call that aversion? What might it be? Yeah? And so I get a sense of the, the larger picture as opposed to the specific incident. So let's say if I'm, if I'm not getting along with one person, I say, well, it's not about the person, it's about my inability to, be, to have opeka with this person. And what is that? What is that in my own, in my own heart? And then it, as I interact with them, oh, I see, I feel intimidated by them or I feel averse to them or I feel annoyed at them or whatever. I see, oh, that's annoyance or that's a fear or whatever it is. So then as I, as I relate to a person, I, I can see, oh, there's that reaction. So with this person as condition, there is the arising of this defilement, of this fear or anger or annoyance. And now I've gotten back from the personality issues, from the storyline of me and him or me and her, and I've gotten to stream of consciousness. So in stream of consciousness, there's this perception or this contact. And with that contact, there's this feeling. And from that feeling, there is aversion or fear or whatever. Now I've got, I've got a capacity now to enter into this complex relationship with this one person and use it actually to gain upeka. And the more I can use it with this one person, then all the people who have similar traits and I have similar reactions, all those people I'm developing upeka with. Right? So if there's a hundred thousand people like that in the world, uh, then they all that hundred all those hundred thousand people, whenever I meet them, will trigger that in me, won't it? Because it's not about them and me, it's about a, a certain pattern that gets triggered. By other kinds of patterns, and that's what sankara is about. So I decide that rather than blaming that person, assuming it's moral, assuming it's not abusive, assuming that it's not just it, that it has to be called out because it's totally wrong. If that if it's totally morally wrong, we call it out. But just the kind of garden variety disagreements we have, um, I see. Well, if with this person, I can, I can have upeka, I can develop. I can develop, I can use this person to develop Opeka, then all, all people, then I've resolved that problem with all people of that nature. Which is huge, which is huge really, isn't it? But when we take life personally, in this personal sense, we have to. We have to be careful of people who are abusive or whatever. But if we are only stuck on that personal level, that's that's what we call conventional truth. That won't liberate you. But the stream of consciousness is where you'll find liberation. And that's not easy. That's not done easily because it takes a lot of work to actually, to be honest enough to say, my reaction to that person is my problem. In a monastery, say, if a person is acting wrongly, according to our conventions, then it's the whole Sangha's problem. And the whole Sangha says, no, you can't do that. That's wrong, according to our principles. But if someone is living according to the principles that we live by and I just can't get along with them or I'm afraid of them or whatever it is, that's my problem. I have to deal with it. If I blame them, I say, well, if you weren't in the monastery, I'd be happy. That's dumb. <laughs> that's not smart at all because sure enough, next week, someone just like that will come into the monastery. So so I, I, I now, I, I kind of take on the challenge. And this is what Po Cha taught a lot. You know, he, he really taught us to Go into the situation of challenge. Don't 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 think it's your that it's your fault. But it's in that situation of challenge and conflict where you'll see the way out of conflict, the way of liberation. And that's talk. I mean, we all know that. But quite often we don't want to approach it in that way. We think the problem is out there. No. So the, the more you the more you can like meditate and get some space around your stream of consciousness events, if we call it that, um, the more that space of meditation will then help you use those very situations of of disagreement and conflict that we have as ways of actually becoming a more peaceful person. One serves the other. It's not like meditation is peaceful and life is like horrible. Uh, Sometimes it is, sure. (laughs) But it's more like meditation prepares you for the horribleness and conflicts of life, so that you can be at peace with all things, at all times. We have a we have a we have a very tragic story that's come uh, here. A friend of the monasteries was uh, in you a, know in a, in a motorcycle accident and um, uh, uh, cut C3, uh, broke his neck basically. So he's paralyzed from the neck down. He's a very keen practitioner. Um, and uh, all of us have been reflecting on just like in a flash, all of a sudden his whole life has changed. But stream of consciousness is still there for him, and he's he's a very aware. He can almost talk. He's on a on a on a on a breathing machine, but the practice is the same. It is and it isn't. It's different, yeah. The situation is, is horribly different, and, and I would not wish that on anyone as a practice, but it is a practice, because if you have practiced awareness of the stream of consciousness, then if even something so horrible happens, awareness is still there, and there is a chance for peace. It's not like it's, it's not lost in any way. Awareness never gets lost. Or, or, or the story of Shah, you know, that he was paralyzed for 10 years. Imagine that. Imagine that, and and the monks who took care of him said that there was this incredible peace around there. So the 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 that we talk about these powerful messages of all day sickness and death, they're not meant to scare scare us, right? Or maybe they are. I don't know, but they're meant, they're meant to 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 ask the question: What is not subject to birth and death? What is not a sankara? So one of the one of the ways we we talk about um, nibbana or or the the peace of, of of the mind is a sankata. Sankhata is something that is conditioned. And a sankhata the negation of that, is not conditioned. So we say nibbana is asankata. So what's not conditioned? In stream of consciousness? Sight? No. Taste? No. Bodily feeling? No. Family relationships? No. Emotions? No. Memory? No. Thoughts? No. They're all Sankaras, right? One thing conditions another thing, and that thing conditions another thing. Flow of consciousness. So, what is a sankata? And that's a, quite a very important question to ask yourself. If you're not asking yourself, then you're not really doing full Buddhist work. You might be doing psychological work. But the full question is what is a sankata? And what do we have that is not dependent on sound? It's awareness of sound, right? You can you can listen to sound. You can feel your body, huh? And if you if you toggle between sound and bodily feeling, you'll see well. There's something unchanging there. There's something silent, and that is awareness. And so, last week I was talking about awareness with, as opposed as opposed to awareness of, and it's a, it's a kind of particular way I like to talk. Awareness with the breath, awareness with sound. Awareness with disagreement. Awareness is the same, right? You're not trying to sort out and never have disagreements. You're not trying to get the perfect sound. You're not trying to get the perfect bodily feeling. You're practicing awareness with change. And when you do that, and you see, you kind of let go of the craving for the stream of consciousness to be perfect or beautiful or lovely, you still have beauty and loveliness that it comes and goes, but you're practicing with everything, with everything, then you begin to see, oh yeah, yeah, that's where the peace lies. That's where the 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 the, the mystery of asankata lies, not in the experience, but back in the background, as it were. Asankata. Now, when we when we have these reflections on old age sickness and death, um, you know, if you don't have that part of it, that there is the deathless, there is asankata, then what's the point of reflecting on death? It just scares you. Right? You, you know, but the point of the reflection on asankhata is not so much to scare you, that you know if you don't behave yourself, you're going you're gonna to have a bad rebirth. That's not the point of it. The point of it is that so there is the unconditioned, the deathless, the Right, And then in stream of consciousness, what gets born and dies, born and dies is a sense of self, me. Why did they do that to me? I'm never going to forgive them, or I should forgive them. and That goes on and on and on birth, death, birth, death, in stream of consciousness. But the knowing, the awareness, the awareness of change, that's how you find asankata. So then the question of, like the Buddhist question, the Devadusas of death and sickness is, is about, you know, it's about finding that which is beyond old age sickness and death. Now, not, not, not in another lifetime, right now, always here now. So the Dhamma is always here now in that sense. Alright, that uh, I'll leave that free reflection.